I'll invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of Scripture this morning. We continue in our study of the parables. Today we are in Luke 16, starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his wounds. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, Between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to there cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us, he said. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to to visit them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You can be seated, and let me pray for us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you've been keeping tabs, but I've had a string of difficult parables here in Luke 16 to deal with. Um, The parable of the rich man and Lazarus sounds very strange to our ears with themes and motifs that feel pretty foreign to us. Um, I'm thankful for the artwork that being supplied this week by uh, Callie Romelli, who's one of our five-year-olds who's in our children's ministry program. She depicts the rich man and Lazarus here. She did a beautiful job of capturing this difficult parable. My goal this morning is for us to feel like Callie, that we have a a clear picture of this parable so that we understand the parable before we seek to apply it to our lives. Um, I've read a bunch this week on this parable, so let me offer you seven observations from my study, and then I'm going to dive into the burning questions that we sort of have left over uh, after that. So observation number one in this parable. Uh, The rich man here is a priest. We only have one clue about this rich man. The text tells us that he was dressed in purple. In purple. We know from Old Testament that purple was actually a dye that was sewn into garments to indicate the priestly class. 
Purple garments were the most difficult to manufacture. They were the most expensive, so they were reserved for the wealthy and the very special. And since purple and fine linen are symbols of the priestly class, it's probable that the rich man in this parable is designed to represent the priests of Jesus' day. It's important because this was not merely a wealthy man. It was a wealthy man who knows God, who knows the scriptures, and is a very religious man. Second observation. Lazarus is the only named person in any of the parables of Jesus. Depending on how you classify a parable, Jesus utilizes 35 to 55 unique parables in his teaching, and there's only one that has a character that has a name, and that's Lazarus. Please note, as we go forward, the rich man in this parable is not given a name, but the poor man, who is covered in sores, is given a proper name. And with a name, particularly in that culture, comes dignity and a sense that even if the world does not see him, Jesus sees Lazarus. Observation number three. Abraham's bosom and Hades are not exactly heaven and hell in the way that we think of them. Our translation tells us that when Lazarus dies, he goes to be with Abraham. If you grew up with the King James Version or some other translations, you will know uh, the translation of he was received into Abraham's bosom. Uh, Kind of a weird idea. Meanwhile, the rich man dies and goes to a place called Hades. Our mind automatically goes to our concept of heaven and hell um, that is more uh, given to us by Hollywood than anything else. This is not quite right. The Jews of the time actually believed that if they were law-abiding, righteous people, that when they died, they would go into a place called Abraham's bosom, a sort of limbo, limbo space where Abraham and all the other righteous people from the Old Testament rested until the Messiah came to resurrect them. So, to be with Abraham is to be in a waiting room for heaven, in a sense. But note that it's, it's both a person and a place. You are with Abraham and you are in a place. Hades is similarly seen in the time of Jesus as both a person and a place. Hades from Greek mythology rules the underworld, if you remember that from school. And he does not do so righteously. He does so spitefully. So while Lazarus is with Abraham, the rich man is with Hades. This is not exactly heaven and hell in our current understanding. Observation number four. This is actually a retelling of an Egyptian myth. Uh, In telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is using something that was already in circulation in his time, an Egyptian folktale that had lots of different variations. But the story follows the god uh, Osiris, And uh, Osiris goes down to the underworld where he gets to observe the fate of both a rich man and a common man. He sees the rich man, whose funeral was largely unattended, had no real fanfare around it. And then he sees a commoner who was buried with many, many friends grieving him and to great pomp. And the moral of the story is that good deeds and many friends will earn you a special place in the afterlife while few friends and obscurity will put you in the farthest reaches of the afterlife where you don't want to go. That's the, that's the Egyptian morality here. So it's a moral teaching about the afterlife that would have been well known in Judea at this time that Jesus is sort of uh, taking, he's stealing. 
Observation number five. But even as he steals this Egyptian myth, uh, Jesus tells us it's not really about the afterlife. It's not a, a prescriptive reading on how we can find our way to heaven and hell. I say this because of what Jesus adds to this thematic parable story. He adds that the rich man has five brothers. That's not in the Egyptian myth. And this man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back to his five brothers who are still living to warn them about the kind of torment that he is in. I think we might expect the parable to really be about Lazarus and the rich man, but really the parable is mostly about the five brothers and how they're going to respond to the poor people who are around them. Will they live like their brother who is now in torment because of the way that he lived his life? Or are they going to respond and see the various Lazaruses that are at their gate? Okay, observation number six. Everybody still with me? Here we go. Jesus is building on a theme from the parable of the prodigal son. This is fascinating stuff. The parable of the prodigal son has already happened a a chapter earlier in Luke chapter 15. Um, Many of you know that parable. I won't go into the whole thing, but there is one striking similarity between these two parables. Both end with a brother who has a big decision in front of them. Both end unresolved. In the parable of the prodigal son, did the elder brother go to the party and actually celebrate his prodigal brother? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. Did the five brothers respond differently than their departed rich brother in their lives? In both cases, these unresolved stories of the brothers are meant to be invitations to us as readers. We are not supposed to be Lazarus or the rich man in the parable. We are the brothers. We are still living, and we have opportunity before us. How are we going to respond? And then observation number seven, last observation. There is no known connection between Jesus' friend Lazarus that we read about in John chapter 10, Uh, and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but there are some echoes that I think are in Jesus' application. Um, Just real quick here, there's no no connection here. Um, Jesus' friend Lazarus Lazarus is not even noted in Luke's gospel. It's only in the gospel of John. So we we shouldn't read these stories as, as being instructive to the other. We shouldn't read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus into John 10 or vice versa. But that said, there's an interesting echo here. Jesus says at the end of this parable, if your brothers didn't believe in Moses and the prophets, even a resurrected person's not going to convince them. How many people saw Jesus' friend Lazarus come out of the tomb after three days, and yet they didn't abandon everything and follow Jesus? I just think that's worth noting. So I hope these observations help you understand what's going on in this parable, maybe what's not going on in this parable. But there are some bigger, important questions that remain now that we sort of understand it a little better. I've got three of them. And the first question, which I hope you're all asking, is what is this parable actually about? What is it about? Uh, Some have made this parable out to be instructions on the afterlife. We've already said that doesn't really work. Some have made this about sort of faith and works. What's the relationship between our faith and our works? But that's not really the heart of the parable either. As I alluded to last week, this parable is, at its core, about money. It's about money. Last week, we uh, focused on stewardship and the parable of the shrewd manager. We're on a a run here of of parables or uh, sermons about money. This week is focused on generosity. 
The word generosity does not occur in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but that is the obvious application as I read it. The parable begins with the juxtaposition of a rich man and a beggar in the same space, as close as you can really be to one another. Great wealth and, and, and abject poverty. And that contrast is really the heart of this parable. Now, it's worth noting that since the 4th century theologian Ambrose of Milan, we are cautioned against sanctifying all poverty and vilifying all wealth. That is not the point of this parable. Poverty, just to be clear, poverty is not a gift from God. It's often the result of numerous sins within and without an individual. It's a malady that we should be striving to fix in our lives and in this world. In the same way, we should not demonize wealth. Wealth is often the outcome of hard work and can be a blessing to many, many people. What this parable attacks is a particular kind of wealth, one that is so self-absorbed and grandiose that it does not even see poverty and suffering sitting on the thresholds of our front doors. So what is the antidote to this kind of callous inequity? It's quite simply to recognize our wealth, our resources, our possessions, and be generous with them. To be generous with them. The rich man, he ate well, he lived lavishly, and he did not practice generosity. And ultimately, it leads to his torment, so much so that he is asking for an opportunity from the afterlife to warn his five brothers, don't live like me, brothers. Don't be so stingy. Don't be so self-absorbed and tight-fisted. Practice a kind of generosity that I didn't because I look back on my life and that is clearly my greatest regret. We might think that it would torment us to practice generosity sometimes, surrendering that which we've worked so hard for, releasing our money to those who might misuse it, giving gifts that hurt our bottom line. But if we believe people who study such things, we are actually tormenting ourselves when we choose to not be generous. It turns out that generosity is actually a really, really healthy practice for us as humans. The sociologists Christian Smith and and Hilary Davidson in their wonderful book, The Paradox of Generosity, summarize a bunch of social science data and conclude that generous people are happy and healthy. They have lower levels of depression and anxiety. They are more interested in personal growth and they have deeper and better relationships. They write, and quote, people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness. But money and happiness are still related in a curious way. Happiness can be the result, not of spending more money on oneself, but rather giving money away to others. The data examined here shows this to not be simply a nice idea, but a social scientific fact. And it's not just social science. Neuroscientists have determined that generosity releases the same kind of dopamine that we get from eating amazing food or having a good belly laugh or making love to our spouse. That's what's happening in our bodies. Generosity is not torturous and painful. It is physiologically creating happiness in us when we practice it. So this is a parable about money and what we do with it. Taking away instructions about the afterlife, which is not what it's about, 
The rich man's lack of generosity leads him to a bad place, doesn't it? A place of hopelessness, a place of torment, a place of death. And when we choose to not be generous, we end up in a prison of sorts here in this life. We're stuck in our lack of concern and care. We are hurting ourselves and we are withholding from those who God knows and cares and loves and has named as his own. So, question number two. Lars, I know this parable isn't about the afterlife. You've said it numerous times. But, does it teach us anything about the afterlife? Because I'm interested in that part of the parable. I hear some of you saying this. Um, And the answer is, yeah, a little. It affirms that there is a judgment that happens when we die. That's a very biblical idea. It affirms that the choices of our earthly life dictate our eternal reality. Again, a very biblical idea. I wish there was more here to say about instructions of the afterlife. I wish that I could point to a passage like this and say, here's what the Bible says about going to heaven or hell. Here's, here's what the afterlife looks like. Here's, here's what we can expect. It doesn't do that. It doesn't teach us what the afterlife is like. But I do think it's instructive on how we should think about the afterlife. Jesus almost completely omits teachings on heaven and hell in the Gospels. He does not focus on the afterlife hardly at all. He doesn't describe them. He doesn't instruct us in any sort of meaningful way on them or speak hardly on them at all. Does that mean that Jesus is uninterested in the afterlife? Uh, Clearly not. He's laser focused on eternal life. So why doesn't he talk about it more? Because he is much more interested in how we live our lives here on earth in these mortal bodies. Jesus' great inversion of that Egyptian myth is that he takes, the moral question, he takes the moral question out of the afterlife and he places it back to those five brothers who are still living. They're living their lives here on earth. It is supernatural for us to be curious about the afterlife, but we should not be obsessed with the details of it because Jesus appears to be far more concerned with the way that we are living our lives here and now. Question number three, last question. What do we practically do with this message? What's the call to action here? How does Jesus want us to respond today to this parable? What's his desired outcome? I think three things quickly. First is we need to see the poor among us. We have to see them. Notice that the rich man's wealth and self-centeredness doesn't even allow him to see Lazarus at the gate. How can you be generous How can you practice generosity and give if you don't even see the need? Warning, I might touch some nerves here in the next couple minutes. Um, We are pretty adept here in the Western Western suburban culture at shielding ourselves from the poor and needy. We have systems and highways and tax brackets and train lines that make the needy around us hard to see. Eugene Peterson says that rather than calling this the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, We should call it the invisible Lazarus and the five brothers. Even when we see the person with a sign at at the busy intersection on 22nd and 83, or or the beggar when we emerge from Ogilvy train station downtown, or, or the guy on the train who is obviously just seeking shelter, he's not really going anywhere, we have become adept at walking by, rolling up our window, putting in our AirPods and pretending like they aren't even there. Friends, 
we have to start seeing the poor people at the gate of our lives. And this is not a metaphor. I'm actually asking you to see them. Lock eyes with them. Give them a modicum of dignity that is being stolen from them. Here's an idea that I've been doing for years. I didn't do it this week and I regret it. Whenever you're going to a place where you think that there might be someone who's asking you for help, have ones and fives in your wallet. Especially when you're headed into the city, you're going on the train, you're going in an intersection where you know it might be used. I know that if I only have 20s or 50s in my wallet, I'm going to be less likely to to do that. But at least if I have ones and fives, I I, I have multiple uh, uh, little pieces of cash that I can give to people. And it's going to give me many opportunities to lock eyes with that brother or sister and really see them. If you don't have cash with you, just tell them, I'm sorry I don't have any cash today. Get their name and tell them that you're going to pray for them. At least when you have a plan like this, it helps you to see the poor and needy among you to make sure that they do not become invisible to you. Second thing, for application, we need to be generous in helping the poor among us. Some of you might not be satisfied with the idea of just locking eyes and giving somebody a couple dollars or spare change. And guess what? I agree with you. That's not enough. I think it's a good start. But ultimately, once we see the poor among us, it's incumbent upon us to practice generosity to them with our time, with our attention, and crucially, with our money. Remember that this parable is first and foremost about money. Here's where you are likely expecting me to give you a pitch for giving to church, uh, offering your, a tenth uh, or a tithe of your income, gross, not net, by the way, to your local church that you happen to be sitting in this morning. Maybe you're re- waiting for that hook. Uh, I'm not going to be doing that this morning. I kind of wish that Jesus or Paul or Peter commanded a tithe to your local church every Sunday. They never do that. It'd be much more convenient for me if they did. Jesus never prescribes how much or in what way we are supposed to give to the poor. But I think our humanness asks that question, yeah, but what am I supposed to do? What are we supposed to give? How much? To whom? What does that look like? And that question reminds me of one of Jesus' favorite Old Testament passages from Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Remember, animals are currency in the ancient world. Is the Lord going to be pleased with, with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil, with, with all the wealth that you could imagine? What's the answer? He's told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is so in line with the life of Jesus. Jesus, likewise, does not tell us how much or how frequent and to what account we should be giving our money. He is not all that preoccupied with the specifics. What he wants us to do is to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. Um. It is such a shame that the word justice has become a politically militarized word in our culture. I just want to own that for a moment. I know there's a lot of supercharged energy around this word. But I feel really, really strongly that we do not surrender words to the culture that God and the Bible had first. 
If you happen to be on the conservative end of the spectrum, I want to just encourage you, do not be fearful or suspicious of this word. Do not assume the worst of the person who is using such a word. If you are on the more progressive end of the spectrum, let me encourage you to not let culture, which is merely parroting godless 20th century French philosophers, define that word for you. I fiercely contend for good words like this. I'm not giving up on a word like justice. Pastor John Mark Comer defines biblical justice simply as to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of another, particularly those who are on the margins, the edge of society, and those who are poor. I think we can agree with that, right? Let's go do biblical justice. This is what it means. See the poor and the needy and disadvantage yourself for them. If you know Jesus and you're following Jesus, there's no excuse to not disadvantage yourself by a few minutes and a few dollars in order to see the poor. And I'm quite certain that God is nudging many of us here to disadvantage ourselves in much more tangible and sizable ways than just a few dollars out of our wallet in a few moments. Jesus doesn't tell us how much and to where, but his overall message is to give continuously and generously especially to the poor who are at the gate of our lives. Last, for us in particular here, we need to be shoulder to shoulder with the poor. I've lived here long enough to see how remarkably generous this church is. I can't tell you how proud I am of the things that you are doing for the kingdom of God. It really blows me away. But one of my principles recently has been for our own discipleship in Hinsdale, the Western Burbs, DuPage County, wherever, wherever it is you live, you're part of this. It is easy enough for us to write checks, but those checks need to be accompanied with rub, by rubbing shoulders with the poor. We can be generous and still not see the poor. That's why I've worked over the years to make sure that our ministry partners here that, that, that we give to you give us opportunities to visit them, to serve them, to learn from them, to be in our lives and vice versa. We need relationships with the needy for our own spiritual formation. And this should be exciting to you, not shaming to you, because the parable teaches us that the needy brothers and sisters among us are here to bless us. The tragedy of the story of rich man and Lazarus is that he's missing out on friendship with Lazarus. Lazarus has a ton to offer him. Over the years, I've had a relationship with a, with a food pantry in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago. It's called Manna for Life. The leader is a man named Danny, um, a human spark plug of a man um, who's taught me as much about Jesus as any of the wisest professors I've had in my life. Years ago, when the food distribution at the church was, was over for the morning, we would take any leftover bags of groceries to, to shut-ins at the Lathrop Homes, which was the, lar- which was the last kind of large-scale housing project on the north side of Chicago. The Lathrop Homes have been torn down in the last five years, which is sad to me, but they are still sort of holy ground in my memory. He would take us to an apartment of an elderly woman who was almost completely blind. She was chair-bound. And he would grab our students by the hand and he would bring them over to this woman and he would say, you hug her. You kiss her forehead. You touch her. Because when you touch a poor, needy widow, that's the closest thing in your life that you're ever going to get to touching Jesus. 
You want to touch Jesus? Then you touch this dear sister. And this woman would reach up from her chair and she would grab these kids, wide-eyed kids, and she would kiss their cheeks and she would bless them in the name of Jesus. You do not get that from writing a check. You don't. We need that. We need that. If you don't know where to start rubbing shoulders with the poor, I'm headed back to Manna for Life in March, March 16th. You can come join me. Um, You're going to rub shoulders with migrants that are fresh off the bus. You're going to rub shoulders with junkies that are coming down from a high the night before and every other kind of need. It's a really messy place. Um, I don't know how to solve all those issues, but I do know that God wants me and you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And rubbing shoulders with the poor seems like an important place to begin with that. So you can find more info in the circular table in the garden court if you want to join me. And if you've got ways that you're already involved in to rub shoulders with the poor, share them. Let's do it together. So, as we've been asking this whole series, what is the gospel value being communicated in this parable? It's that gospel people see acknowledgement of and genuine concern for the poor as a core element of the good news. Friends, in the parable of the invisible man and the five brothers, we are the five brothers. What are we going to do now? We do not need a sign from God. Jesus said it himself. An apparition to awaken us. We have all that we need in Scripture and in fellowship with one another to convince us that it is good and right for us to see the needs of others and practice bold generosity. May we do so, and may we be changed through it. I'm going to invite us to a time of prayer. The prayer is going to be very simple this morning. It's going to be up on the screen. It's four simple lines. I want us to say it through just twice. Maybe in your heart, if you're still sort of wrestling with this word today and what it means for you, you might want to just sit back and listen or read it silently. But if your hearts are open to the ways in which God might be leading us to see the poor and needy among us, would you say this prayer with me? It'll be up on the screen. Let's say it together. God, open my eyes to the poor and needy. Help me to see their need and my need for them. Teach me generosity, our most generous God. May I do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. One more time. God, open the eyes to the poor and the needy. Help me to see their need and my need for them. Teach me generosity, our most generous God. May I do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. Amen. Would you stand and join us for our closing hymn? It's on the screen. It's also number 207. Christ is the truth, the way.